0: Welcome back to Combat Learjet podcast. I appreciate everybody uh, being patient with us. We took a break for a while. We've got a new setup, uh, a new studio we're using, and we're excited to get going again. I think we're going to, Derek and I plan on doing um, a couple months if we can mm-hmm. get it, get them lined up. But uh, we're super excited today. We have a guest today that I've I've wanted to have on uh, the moment I heard his story and it's just taken a while to get this going so uh Logan Flood is with us and he has an incredible story to tell and i think uh i think all the listeners are really going to enjoy this one it's uh it's it's very interesting it's the story of uh obviously aviation tragedy and redemption and and making it back uh all the way to flying again so Logan i just want to say i really do appreciate you uh being willing to come on and thank you Thank you for sharing your uh, story and your time with us.
1: No, you're very welcome. I'm always happy to share my story. I don't mind telling it. I know some people see it as an inspiration and I, and I kind of wear it like a like a badge of honor. you know I kind of feel like it's my duty to share the story to let people know like hey you, you can move on through tragedy so absolutely it is. I
0: mean that's when when I first listened to it that's as i'm I was riveted to it a lot of times I listen to podcasts and I kind of listen to it for a while, put it down and come back to it. And I, I just, I couldn't, I had to make time to, to get through yours. It was incredible uh, story when I first heard it. And, and I, I think if I remember right, as soon as I heard it, I immediately sent you a message um, on Instagram asking if I could repost it. So that that's how it impacted me. And I was just uh, thrilled to hear, you know, start to finish. And it's an, it's an incredible story. So once again thank you for uh coming on and sharing that with us absolutely so I, i'll just start off I, i'm gonna i'm gonna let you do most of the talking today logan um i however you wanna i'd love to hear your your story how you got into aviation a little bit kind of your flying career i'm always interested in that and then if you just want to kind of take us through you know what we're talking about and then along the way if i have any questions or if you have anything you want to um jump in we'll uh just take it down
1: one of those those roads all right sounds good well um i'm the I'm the only pot in the family I'm the youngest of uh three brothers um, and I'm the son of a truck driver he was a, a truck driver over the road cross country uh truck driver for almost uh forty five years and uh he uh he drove a fifty eight kenworth for the longest time and then he Bought a a kit Peterbilt in the seventies from the old uh, Coastal Provisions truck line from out in Western California, and uh, so I kind of gave got a love of big machinery and transportation through him. But also growing up in the late seventies, early eighties, I my dad totally encouraged uh, science fiction, and I I fell in love with Star Wars, and so the uh, the thrill of flying kind of came from watching a. Uh, Star Wars so much as a kid. Uh, But growing up in rural Nebraska, also was privy to seeing crop dusters buzz in our house all the time. We lived right in the middle of a cornfield and I'd watch crop dusters fly, just come right over our house. And man, that was so fun watching that. Um, So that right then and there, that really became my drive. I really was just totally zeroed in on flying as a kid. Um, my eyesight wasn't the best though. I inherited my, my mom's eyes and I'm just blind as a bat without glasses. And growing up in rural Nebraska in the 80s, you know, no one knew any pilots, didn't know anyone to talk to, didn't know who to ask questions to. So pretty much everyone always assumed well, if you're going to be a pilot, you got to have perfect vision. You know, and if you want to be an airline pilot, well, the only road to do that is go through the military. And that's just what I assumed. My uh, older brother, he pursued a career in law enforcement. And at the time, I thought, well, if my eyesight's too bad for aviation, I kind of admired my older brother. So I kind of followed his... I was going to follow his path and go into law enforcement with him. Um, It wasn't until I was in high school. um, I was still enamored with aviation, but I kind of given up hope. But of course, I still had an old Packard Bell 486 computer in high school, and I still played Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, I was always, uh, I took my dad's, uh, my dad had all these old road atlases when he used to do cross, you know, driving coast to coast. Cause I mean, there's no GPS, there's no cell phone. So he had an old, he always had these old road atlases and he'd always get a new one every year. And I found a stack of his old ones. And so what I would do, I would get on flight simulator and I'd get a protractor and I would start at mapping out headings and trying to get a magnetic heading off the true north off my dad's road atlas to fly to all these different cities. Wow. And I I was getting pretty close. Um, Going into my brother went to Goodwill once and he found the Holy Grail. He found a 1993 AOPA airport handbook. And in that handbook, they list all these VORs that are on the field. And Microsoft Flight Simulator had all those VORs coded in, so I was so I was learning radio navigation and everything, but just for fun. So in high school, I'm working at Sears in the hardware section, and some guy writes a check for tools, and I gotta see his ID to verify the check. And and of course, you know, uh, when a pilot's in the room, he's gotta tell you he's a pilot. He's <laughs> like, how about, "How about my pilot's license?" And this dude had glasses thicker than mine. I'm like, "Well, you got a pilot's license? How's that possible?" And And he told me, oh, you get a waiver. So right then and there, I went back to my high school teacher in business and said, I met a guy last night who's a pilot with really bad glasses. I think I need, uh, can we research this a bit more? And the computers at the high school had dial up AOL. And so that was pointless. And (laughs) the guidance counselor at the high school made a few phone calls and found out that the university down the road did, in fact, offer a flight program. University of Nebraska over in Kearney had an aviation program. Met with them and they pretty much showed me, oh, yeah, you can have a full on career in aviation. You can get waivers for your eyesight. So, my high school teacher, my business teacher, our senior year, we had to do internships and it's supposed to be a business related internship. And uh, some of my classmates got internships at law firms and uh, doctor's offices, you know, pushing paperwork, whatnot. And my teacher, she pulled some strings. She got me an internship working the ramp out in Grand Island, and I got to shadow all these line guys pumping gas into airplanes, degreasing airplanes. Loved every minute. Just to be able, just to be able to touch these airplanes, crawl in them, clean them, get underneath them, and degrease them. You know, I'm doing all this manual labor for free, and I'm loving every minute of it. And uh, eventually, talking to all these pilots you meet all these contacts out there and that's the thing. You just meet all these guys flying through and talking to them and they want, you know, they love showing off their love for aviation. They show you their airplane. Then all of a sudden I'm getting rides. My teacher starts freaking out that like you're, you're flying in these airplanes. I'm like, yeah. She's like, okay, I'm going to need your parents to sign a waiver now because I didn't (laughs) know you're going to be doing that. Um, So I started doing rides out there at the airport and I'm all of, you know, 17 years old out there in Grand Island, Nebraska. And uh end up meeting uh some corporate pilots. And one of them was a chief pilot for a manufacturing company there, Grandon. He had a Cheyenne too. And he took me up. They had they just overhauled his engines and he had to go take it for a test flight. And he's like, You wanna go with me? And of course I do. And that one first time flying in a turboprop and he he ran it up full power, held the brakes, and then he let off the brakes and he just launches you <laughs> in the back of your seat. And that was a blast. And um, the company that I was interning at, well, they saw my enthusiasm. They saw my love. And they're like, yeah, you wanna, we want to hire you over the summer and you can keep working here during college. And so I turned in my two weeks notice at Sears and took a huge pay cut. And I was pumping gas all summer long. And it was probably the you know, next to actually flying the airplane. It was the best job I've ever had. I really did love those days in the summer of 95 and 96, pumping gas in airplanes. Yeah.
0: Well, just being around it, you know, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. You know, hearing the airplanes coming and going, you know, and uh, eventually uh, I got a uh, kind of a position there where every, you know, the FBO, it wasn't a 24 hour operation. It's a small rural airport and they would shut down at like 9 PM. But then uh, over in the middle of the night, these two um, airmail uh, contract planes would fly through in the night, dropping off mail and picking up mail too would come one at eleven thirty, one one at 1230. And they'd be in these old era commanders flying from Omaha across the state of Nebraska out to Alliance. And uh, so you'd pump gas in one at 1130 and go upstairs in the pilot lounge and watch Conan O'Brien and, then all of a sudden you'd see the, you see the runway lights turn on and that means the 1230 guys coming in. So you turn off the TV and go out there and start the truck again. And they were paying me, you know, 20 bucks to come out and do this at night. Just loved it I bring my, I bring my high school friends with me, you know, and just hanging out there shooting the shit in the hangar, waiting for the sub air to come in. One of the guys, um, that was flying for sub air. Um, Again, people, there's these people in aviation that have just a true love of aviation that they can't wait to teach it and share it with somebody. There is a pilot flying for Subair. That was the name of the company out of Omaha Suburban Air Freight. He was, uh, that was just his part-time job. His full-time job was flying corporate out of Omaha. He flew a 414, a 421. And he always uh, mentored college kids in Omaha, and he got to meet me and got to talk with me. And he realized I was going to college in Kearney, and he kind of took a, you know, he kind of wanted me to kind of mentor under him. And so he told me, he's like, "Hey, I'm flying. uh, I'm doing this just part time, but next week I'm doing some corporate flying. Drive up to Omaha and come ride right seat with me." So I worked out my class schedule, my work schedule, and yeah, I drive out. It's like from where I live, it's like a three and a half hour drive over to Omaha. And I would go fly right seat with him in this 421, you know, just working the radios. Really, that's all I was really doing is just working the radios and just watching him, you know, shadowing him. And he was teaching me all about the airplane, all about corporate flying, you know, taking care of your your passengers and whatnot. And uh, over the years, we did that quite a bit. And then finally, when I graduated from college, um, it turns out he had many, he mentored a lot of kids and he helped a whole bunch of them get jobs at Silverhawk Aviation in Lincoln Nebraska and they all started out as flight instructors there and he talked to the right people and got me a job as a flight instructor out there too over here in Lincoln Nebraska and this was all in the uh the summer of 2000 when I finally graduated college so and and uh one of the uh one of the mentees that he had and this was his if he could have adopted him, I'm sure he would have. There was a exchange student from Singapore and his name was Raja, Raja Gopal, And uh, he started out as a flight instructor and he was the kind of guy again, with the passion of aviation loves teaching this, you know, some people that want to aspire to be career pilots, they see, they see being a flight instructor as a, uh, a stepping stone, a way to build hours. Um, but Raja was one of the guys that he truly Love being an instructor. And he showed it. He, he treated all of his students with love and respect. He would hold little barbecue parties for all of his students at his house. Um, yeah, he really, and his students adored him. And the management there at Rock recognized that, that he was one of those guys that's probably going to stick around if we give him enough flying opportunities. He's not going to go on to the airlines. He'll stay if we, you know, give him the right opportunities. And he did. They started moving him up into the charter department um for the most part he was doing a Baron 58 flying and but occasionally he was going to start doing some twin Cessna flying flying they had a 414 I think I had a 340 god it's been so long ago I can't even remember but um flying with him they uh I started flight instructing there got to know him and realized that you know him and Dick were really close and uh Dick reminded me, hey, when you if you get a chance to fly with Raja, do it. You'll learn a lot from him. He's he's really good. And he, you know, being from Singapore, he was a different nationality, but and he had a he had a accent to his his English, but he was still such a super nice guy. And he can, he was really smart. And uh so I had flight instructor for Silverhawk for a uh for almost a year, not quite that, didn't make a full year. So I was hired in May of 2000. So it's February of 2001. Um, I had finally hit enough hours, 1,200 hours, is what you needed to be uh, multi-engine 135 certified. And uh, he, uh, the, the chief pots, told me, hey, start flying with Raja more because we're going to move Raja probably up to the King Air because we got some guys moving on. Everyone's moving up. So uh, if Raja's is going to move on to the King Air, we want you to start doing the Baron flying. And there was a Wednesday morning flight we would always do, and it was always early. It was always like at four thirty in the morning, and we'd leave from Lincoln, and we'd fly up to a small town up in north central Nebraska called Valentine. And what we would do is we would carry these little ammunition-style canisters, about two, two or three of them, full of these radioactive isotopes for the hospital up there to use for X-rays. And uh, the drive up there was always like six hours, but we could do it in the barren in like one hour. And they they needed that because these isotopes would never the half-life was really minimal in them. And what we do is we'd ride with him, because it's a single pilot operation. He would fly the cargo up there, dump it, and since you're coming back empty, you're coming back as part ninety-one. But uh what a lot of us flight instructors would do is take turns flying with Raja to build the time in the barren, build time in the airplanes. So what we do is we fly up there with Raja dump the cargo, swap seats, and the other guy would fly the leg back and we'd build like an hour and a half time in the Baron. I mean, it doesn't seem much in the scheme of things, but back then, man, every, every hour multi-time you can get for free was gold, man. So, so um, eventually, we were all taking turns. And finally, uh, February 7th, 2001, it was uh, my turn to go with him. And he had, uh, Raja had taken about a month off. He had returned home to Singapore to go see his family. And this was almost basically his first flight back. He had done us some other the fun the day before. The, on February 6th, it was a beautiful, gorgeous day. 65 degrees, clear skies, no wind. Um I, looking back at my logbook, for some reason I was always bad about updating my logbook. I'd always update it like once or twice a week, if that. But some reason on February 6th, I, filled up all my flying I did that day. And I flew a lot. I think it's probably why I updated my logbook because I did a lot that day. It was so much. So come February 7th, Wednesday morning, um, it's uh, there's a winter storm that's kind of eventually moving its way across the state. It's not really supposed to be in the Lincoln and Valentine area until later on in the afternoon. And it's 4 3 in the morning. So we're going to blast up there and turn around, come back before the storm hits here. And the field is... When I get to the airport, it's... It's that typical Midwest winter weather and it's low ceilings, low vis drizzly. And, uh, the airplane, the Burn 58, um, it had a, all I had for a window de-ice was just an alcohol spraying system. It didn't have a hot plate. So when you blew all the alcohol, you were done. So that's so you, you only wanted to use the alcohol until you're making an approach. So you, this, the trick is to let the ice build on the air, on the, on the window and blow the alcohol when you're making your final approach to clear it off. And it had boots on the uh, wings, tail, and then also the props. But the airplane, it it wasn't certified for flight into known icing, even though it had all this equipment. And I think it's because it didn't have the hot plate. That was the only operating limitation, I think. But um, back then, I remember this was a big to-do in the late 90s. And subsequently, early 2000 was there was this big... um, Oh, it's hard to describe it. There was a discussion being made about what is a known icing condition. And back then I remember the FA had come out saying, you know, a known icing condition is this temperature, visible moisture done. That's a known icing condition. I remember AOPA went to bat for all these part 91 part 135 operators that are basically going to have to close their doors because up until then a flight to known icing condition was by definition, a known condition. So if you could fly in it and not pick up ice, well that's not a known that's not a known icy condition. It's not it's not an icy condition. And, you know, you've flown in, you know, in those conditions and not pick up a single trace. Mm-hmm. And then the next day fly in the same conditions and you pick up, you know, moderate to severe. And so that was That was a saving grace on a lot of operations back in the late 90s is like, hey, you know, if you by definition, if you want to say it's no icing condition, then we're never going to be able to fly. But I can promise you we can fly today and not pick up a trace of ice at all. So there was this big um, cultural shift happening and it hadn't happened yet. So back then, the mantra was, well, a known ice conditions, if it gets reported back as icing, then that's a known condition. But until again, you've blasted off and you go. So we took off out of, uh, out of Lincoln. And at first, we were checking in. And it's just only an hour flight. And we we're picking up just a little light icing, just anything you'd expect for that type of weather. And we were blowing it off with the boots just fine. And it was building on the window. And we were changing altitudes and we were noticing a difference. It was getting better. We went from like 6,000 feet up to 8,000 feet. But um, there was no other airplanes up that early in the morning. So there's no pyrops of any icing. And so we continued on to the destination because we were having luck blowing the ice off the boots. And um, there was a couple other guys. Doing a three forty and a four fourteen charter that morning in kind of the general direction, we were kind of going more northwest, and some other guys kind of went straight north. But they looked at the weather and they made the decision to go too. So uh, I kind of looked at it as a kind of a reinforcement. Like Raj and I made an okay decision. If these other guys made a decision too, they saw exactly what we saw, and and it wasn't much. We're flying to these small town airports where there's no such thing as a TAF. The only thing you have to go off of is this, this big area forecast that covers the span of, you know, 200 square miles. So it's hard to gauge an accurate forecast out of some of this stuff. But, um, as we, uh, as we approach, uh, uh, we're getting close to Valentine and we tune into the ASOS and on the field, it's starting to report freezing rain. And, uh, Raja didn't even hesitate. He's like, we're not even gonna try to find that. I'm turning around right now. And at the time we were just North of a small town called Ainsworth. And he's like, you know what? I know Ainsworth is right behind us. So let's just land and take a look and see what's going on. Cause we're not flying this freezing rain. So as we're turning around, Raja hands me his cell phone and tells me to call There's There's a nurse that would always drive out to the airport and come be at some I mean, this airport. There's like, it's like, just a shack on it. There's nothing out there at this airport. So she would literally just drive onto the ramp, and we would throw the medicine at her. She would sign some paperwork, and we'd be on our way. And uh, so he hands me his cell phone. What's this? old big flip cell phone, <laughs> and uh, tells me, "Hey, call her and tell her that she's either going to have to come to Ainsworth because we're not landing in uh, Valentine." And I remember talking to somebody, I, I couldn't, it was the airplane was so loud and I'm trying to shove the phone underneath my old big David Clark headset and she, she was hearing me and I could vaguely hear her out, but I just kind of remember, I remember shouting at her repeatedly, Hey, we're going to Ainsworth. We're going to Ainsworth. We can't get to Valentine. We're going to Ainsworth. And then I hung up. And so then I started helping Raja start working on an approach to get into Ainsworth, get the ASOS dialed up and that's reporting, you know, a couple miles of visibility um, high overcast skies, but it's kind of misting and drizzling, you know, kind of the same weather we left in Lincoln. Nothing uh, nothing too low. Uh, the only problem is the airport doesn't have an ILS and um, we don't have a GPS on the airplane. We have a Loran, but mm-hmm. there's no approaches to use the Loran to get in. So we got to basically shoot a, a hardcore old school VR approach to get in. And as we are getting vectored on the VR approach, um, we're kind of still monitoring the ASOS and it reports over to freezing rain now. So it's like now we're in a pickle. It's like we we're diverting to an airport that just changed to freezing rain. Hmm. We got freezing rain behind us, we got freezing rain in front of us, you know. We're we're kind of getting in trouble. And at this point, Raja starts noticing that the airspeed is slowly he hasn't changed the power, and he's noticing that the airspeed has been taking a hit. We're we're picking up more drag on all the unprotected surfaces, the antennas and whatnot. And uh so as we're flying along, we, uh, we start getting vectored on the VOR approach. And at this point, um, the center controller loses radar contact with us. And it's at that altitude, Denver Center, can't see nothing. We're at maybe 3,000 feet, and Denver lost track of us. So that means we're flying the full approach. Um, the good news is the VOR is right on the approach end of the runway. So if we lined up that needle right on dead center, we should be lined up the runway. And at this point, we kick on the window alcohol to clear the window. And the gauge was on my side of the airplane and it was reading full and it went from full to empty in about maybe 30 seconds because he put it on full blast. And there's only a couple gallon tank in the nose. And before we left, he had he had filled a, a gas can full of more de-ice fluid to fill us back up before we left because he knew we weren't going to be able to get it there in Valentine. So we were actually bringing up a bottle of our own to top us off. So that probably plays into a fact here in a little bit where, uh, so we blow the whole tank and it was working because the fluid was dripping past the side of the windows. We could see out the slide it was just fine. We broke out. We could see the fluid streaming past the windows, uh, but nothing came off the front window at all. The, the mm. ice was totally permanent and intact. No, it wasn't coming off. So we're blind and we had the heater on full blast. Um, at one point in the flight, I had crawled in the back of the airplane and sealed up all the Gaspers as tight as I could so we can get full blast hot air on that window as much as we could. And um, we see the freezing rain. We see the ice is freezing behind the boots. And we know we're getting some serious trouble. And as we're flying the VR approach and our heads are planted up the windows just trying to see forward and the needle flips on us. It goes from to to from. We go right over the VOR station passage. And uh, we look down; we can see the runway going by underneath us. And we're we're at the MDA, so we're like 400, 500 feet. I can't remember exactly what the MDA was on that approach. So we fly down it, and we realize that we're in serious trouble. Going a missed approach is not a good idea. At least we're down here below the cloud deck. We can see what we're going, see what we're doing. There's no terrain or obstacles. It's completely flat out there. So Raj just stays right there at that 400 feet MDA, and we circle around. Make, he makes a left-hand turn. He basically tells me if we're going to try to line up that runway again and try to get on the ground. And as we're downwind, we can see the numbers, we can see the approach end. And it's like, well, this might work. You know, We'll try to line up and have a nice gradual three degrees down here. In a couple of minutes, we get turned on final. And as we're right at being the numbers, the airframe gives a, a stall buffet, letting us know that it's, it's done flying. Mm. And Raja instinctively you know, max powers, firewall thrust as hard as he could. And every time he would kind of give a little back pressure on the yoke, that stall buffet would come back full on and he never let it go full stall. So he'd say, Hey, let the nose down. He nursed it, you know, give it some airspeed again and then hold back a little bit. Nope. Another buffet. And he was, this all went on over the couple of matter of 30 seconds as we're losing altitude now trying to make it to the runway. He kinda has the airplane in a gradual left bank. And I realize now what you know, I'm still I'm still a young kid. I'm all (laughs) of twenty-two years old, been out of college, not even a year. This is my first time flying in this type of weather ever. You know, I've been a VFR pilot this whole time, a flight instructor, VFR flight instructor. And I've flown some corporate flying, but nothing this serious. You know, I've never really dealt with icing conditions like this, but now I'm realizing how how bad it got how bad we're in a corner here and how fast it happened to us and as we're uh coming around trying to make the front of the runway um i just remember once i re- once it dawned on me it's like this is serious and we're in deep trouble and this could be it i think this is it um i'm literally afraid that we're going we're going to hit the ground here and this is going to be a quick death for me and i say a very short prayer make this quick and painless and shortly thereafter, my last conscious thought of the time, I heard the propellers hit the dirt and just dirt just hits and flies everywhere. And then I get knocked unconscious. And that was everything up to the accident.
0: How much, how much ice, just backing up a little bit, would you, would you guess that you had on the airframe? Half an inch? Uh,
1: inch yeah, of- oh, at least a half an inch, if not more, if I can remember right. It was, it was, it was still dark. And the strobes were flashing. I mean, that's how I was gauging it was seeing the the light flash, the the reflection of the strobes flashing. And yeah, it was a fair amount on the leading edge. I remember, and we were trying to kick it off the boots, but the boots were almost ineffective now at this point, the way the ice was forming. Yeah. So and yeah, those it, was, it was get to a
0: point where they won't do it anymore, right? If you get right. so much and
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, but what was I think? What was killing us was um the uh, all the drag on the unprotected surfaces. Yeah. You know? So everything. So the engines just can't produce enough that enough thrust. Um, basically, um, one point was brought up: like, well, could you see if the tail? I you mean, know, the the the, the stalls describing. You know, I was talking to the NTSB guys, or not the NTSB, the FAA guys. They're thinking, well, that kind of sounds like maybe you're having a tail stall. Were you able to see if the. Uh, boots on the tail were working and and I couldn't recall. I don't remember looking. And if I did look, I was, I couldn't see that far back. It was too dark. Um, so that was an idea that was thrown around. Was like, maybe the, the tail boots weren't actually working properly. Maybe that's why we, uh, the airplane was in a stall at that point. But the whole thing was moot because we still couldn't, we couldn't make that first approach. Had we uh, cleared the window, we would have landed on that first approach and have been a different yeah. outcome. So, so that wasn't, um, too much of an issue. But um, so, yeah, we ended up crashing a quarter mile north of Runway 17 in Ainsworth. And it was exactly at 7.04 a.m. And I know this because we just missed a farmer's house as we came down. We, he jumped out of bed, wondering what the hell was that. And he looked out his window and saw us go over his house, just barely missed the power lines and hit the ground and explode. And uh, he looked at the clock on his bedside and he said it was 704. And that's when he dialed 9 one to let them know that it was an airplane crash out there north of the airport. And uh, the small town of Ainsworth, it's full-on. It's a volunteer-only fire department. There's no, you know, some, some of that stuff is, you know, some of your listeners might not get the concept of a volunteer fire department, but that's where people are just at home in bed and... When they get the call, they got to get dressed and they got drive to the fire station and then get their gear on, then get in their trucks and come out. You know, and some of these guys are farmers that live miles away from the fire station, even. So he called nine one one, and he took it upon himself. He threw his jeans on and uh, got in his truck and drove out to uh, come come investigate. And he had he he was a cattle farmer and um, he had been out checking on cattle earlier that morning. And he said it was just raining at the time. And he got home from checking on his cattle and was gonna go back and take a rest and take a nap. And we woke him up, unfortunately. And uh he said when he got in his truck, the the free, the freezing rain had gotten so bad in his truck it was it was cover it was caking his truck really good. So he right then and there that tells me how fast this freezing rain moved in. Yeah. So he drives out to the field. And it takes him, I mean, not far. He's just got to drive down. He's got to drive down two gravel roads to get to me, to get to the access road, to get into the field. And in that time, I had to become conscious. I had become awake. I was uh, in the back of the Baron. Um, I don't know if you can imagine a Baron. It's a six-seat uh, airplane. that has got two front seats and then two seats directly behind the pilots back to back. And then two forward-facing seats at the back of the airplane. So it was a four in the back and two up front with the four in the back facing each other. And I'm in the back of the airplane and my seat's still laying sideways. So my seat had came off the rails. And um, I wake up and I can, I cough in. I got you know soot in my mouth and uh, my vision is completely blurred. There's no fire in the cabin at this point. But there's definitely fire out there. There's fire on the wingtips. I can hear it crackling. And I start start trying to scream. I start calling for, hey, Raja, Raja, let's get out of here. Let's wake up. Let's get out of here. And I'm having trouble getting myself rolled up and free because I'm just such an awkward position. But I'm able to do so. And I'm able to scooch forward. And the Baron, the only door into the Baron um, for the pilots is on, is on the right side. And that door was gone. And that's where I was sit, sitting at. So the door was gone and I managed to stay in the airplane, fortunately. Hmm. And so I I lean forward, I get out the door, I roll down the wing with the seat still strapped to my back. And finally, I'm able to kind of get my bearings. I'm able to look down, get the seatbelt undone. And I stand up and I take a moment to realize, I look back and we, we set this, it was a, we crashed in a frozen cornfield a plowed cornfield. So there's always corn stalks everywhere. And we just, we just lit a, we blaze a trail through this. When we hit the ground, we exploded. We lit a whole bunch on fire. So I can look back and I see this trail of fire. We just left through this cornfield and the fire is now crackling on the wingtips really bad. The avgas is just feeding the fire from the wings. And I look back and I see Raja still sitting in the pilot seat. And so I turn around and I try to get him Wake up! I crawl to, crawl back in there. I shake and try to revive him. And at this point, I start getting scared. Like the fire's building up. I'm thinking this airplane is going to explode with me inside of it. So I step out of the airplane. And I run around to his side of the window. So I run outside the airplane, go to his side, and pound on his window. Raj, I wake up! We need to get out of here. And at this point, I I I, re- I need help. I need someone to help me. And I look back and I can see the airport beacon. And it's like, I know there's got to be a phone there somewhere I can call. So I start running across the frozen cornfield, running across the rows in the freezing rain to go find a phone. And as I'm running, I'm stumbling, I'm tripping. My uh, shoes aren't staying on very good. So I take off my shoes and I'm running through this cornfield now in my socks. And my vision is all completely blurred. And finally, I see two headlights kind of just turn right into my general direction. So I kind of veer off the way I was going and kind of go towards the headlights. And I start waving my arms, calling out for help. And finally, a voice calls out to my right in the dark. And it was Brian Williams, the farmer. He uh, he calls out in response to me. And I kind of collapse into his arms. And right then a second pickup truck pulls up. And it was a woman driving to work. She saw us crash and she drove over to come see what was going on. He gets me back to her pickup truck, and her name was Kendra. And uh, she says, okay, I'll drive you to the hospital. Brian asked me, is there anyone still in the airplane? I said, yeah, uh, my friend Raj is still in the airplane. So Kendra starts driving me to the hospital, and Brian turns off and runs back to the wreckage. But at this point, he can't get within 50 feet of it. It's burning that bad. Like he, it's just it's just so hot. It's burning so hot that he he can't get within fifty feet of it. And it, so it's Raja was still in the airplane. Um, the The autopsy for Raja had showed that he mercifully he died on impact, and uh, they they know that because his lungs were clean. If you read the NTSB report, they talk about how his his lungs had no inhalation, no burns. Whereas me, I breathed in all the smoke and all the fire. My lungs were toast. And uh, so I breathed it all in. So he stopped breathing the minute we hit the ground. Um, So we mostly put together that I got most of my burns are on the right side of my body. And we think that's because, you know, when the door broke and uh, the airplane had a nose heater And that's also where the window alcohol is at. And we also had a gas can full of more alcohol. Um, We think that maybe when the airplane hit the ground, that nose crunched and that heater just ignited everything and that fire and the plus the right engine right there. All that, all that flammable fluid just blew in through the door there. and That's what burned all me on the right side. So, but I don't remember any of that because I got knocked out in the impact. So, uh, so Kendra's driving me to the hospital and she tells me, like, I, I can't drive faster than 20 miles an hour. This ice is so bad. And it's about a good seven miles drive into town to get me to the hospital. So she's driving me and now the sun's starting to come up. And now I'm just sitting here in this pickup truck now, kind of now with nothing but my thoughts. And I'm looking down, I see my jeans are completely burned and shredded. My sweater is melted onto my arms. And my skin is all black, and and I start smelling this god awful smell, and I'm thinking, you know what? I was just running through a plowed pasture, and and usually cattle graze pasture. So, am I smelling cow shit all over me, or am I smelling my own burned flesh on me? And and so things like that start running through your your mind. And as she's driving me, uh, the amb- we see an ambulance and she's like I'm gonna I'm gonna wave it down I'm gonna wave it down and I'm like no no you're not no that's Raja needs help more than me you got me going to the hospital just keep going please just keep going that's that's Raja's obviously got more critical than me so that ambulance has gotta go help Raja and so she did so she's like okay and so we kept on driving and she kind of starts, you know, she she does things to keep my mind distracted. She starts asking me, "How old am I? Where am I from? Do I have a girlfriend? Where do I go to school?" You know, just things to keep me mentally in the, you know, in the moment and not thinking about the worst. And as she gets me to the hospital, now the adrenaline has kicked back in again, and I ha- they almost have to force me into a wheelchair. I literally like walk in on my own two feet. Like, okay, okay, let's go, let's go. Get me to the ER. Let's strap me down. Let's let's do this. And as they're, they're pumping me full of IVs, they're asking my name. They want phone numbers to call. So I give them my chief pilot's number. I give them my parents' phone number, all from the top of my mind. So I'm like, I'm all mentally there talking to them. But I'm just dying of thirst. I just want to have a drink so bad. And that's something I've read about that you know, burn victims, you know, their body just goes into full dehydration mode. And so I was just dying of thirst. And they finally wet a paper towel and to give me a drink. They didn't want to give me any real flus. They get, they wet a paper towel and stuck at my mouth and that felt like I was drinking Gatorade. It felt so good. And, um, so behind the scenes, from what I've all heard secondhand, um, the hospital realizes how badly burned I'm in and they can't, that's, it's just a, uh, a critical care hospital. They, they ship and they, they, you know, they stabilize you and ship you out. And this hospital can't, Handle my injuries at all. They can stabilize, but they got to get me to a burn unit asap. And the closest one is well back in Lincoln, which is a good six-hour drive away. And at this point, I'm pretty critical. Um, so the silverhawk in Lincoln was well. We had the contract for the hospital. We're an air ambulance operation, also. That's what the other guys did in the King Air was air ambulance flying. And uh, so they get a phone call. The 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 air ambulance guys on duty get a phone call. Like, hey, we got a uh, burn victim up here can you fly and come get him? so they sit down and look at the weather and they're like well if you had called maybe an hour ago i probably would have said sure but not now that freezing rain has moved down there and yeah we're not going to fly in that and so about and now about 45 minutes go by the chief pilot gets in and it's about 8 a.m now chief pilot's getting in and they get a phone call now a second time and it's from the county sheriff saying hey um there's an aircraft that you guys own that's crashed up here uh, as far as we could tell one's dead and one's at the hospital critically burned and right then they get a they they put two, and two together like that's what that phone call was that's to go up there to get our guy so they were they were pulling the airplane out when the chief pilot came in and once the chief pilot realized what was going on he's like no no we we can't risk two airplanes I know we you guys your you guy's heart in the right place but we got to think rationally here. If this brought down one airplane, what's to say you guys are going to crash now too, if this freezing rain. So yeah. don't even try it. So they, they called the hospital like, yeah, we can't do it. What do you guys got to do? You're going to have to do whatever you need. Um. So they ended up uh, putting me in the back of an ambulance and I was fully intubated and I was unconscious and uh, they had to. Uh, get a sand truck to drive in front of the ambulance about halfway from Ainsworth to Lincoln until they finally got on dry roads and I had to be intubated, but they had, don't have a portable ventilator. So um, this doctor basically had to hand pump bag me six hours, six plus, almost six and a half, eight hours all the way from Ainsworth to Lincoln pumping air into me. And he said, I mean, I've, I've gone back and talked to him. Years later, and he told me the story. He's like, "Oh yeah, I was pumping India, you, but you were." He said, "I was conscious, but the drugs that he was giving me, he said 'You you wouldn't remember, but you were conscious. You were you were moving your body, helping me out.'" And so, they kept me in a drug induced coma for about three weeks, and it was not until uh, about February twenty seventh, twenty six, when I woke up in the uh, burn unit in Lincoln. So. I was, uh, I was burned about 85% of my body, my whole right leg, my whole right arm and hand, my whole head and face were burned. Um, my burns were so severe on my right hand that they had to amputate um, fingers off my right hand. They had to amputate my whole pinky. And then they had to amputate all the other fingers down to the first knuckle. And then scar tissue formed between all the other fingers. So basically, I have basically a... Kind of what resembles like a mitten, like a child's mitten on my right hand. That's all it is. I basically have one little thumb pincher, and that's about it. So I spent about another after I stayed about three months in the burn unit getting all sorts of surgeries done. And
0: um, How many surgeries did you have?
1: Do you know? Over the course of before I got released from the hospital, I was there for I got released just before Memorial Day. That was kind of my goal. Um, was um, at the time I was super excited for the movie Pearl Harbor that was coming out that Memorial Day. You know, me being an airplane buff, I oh. that airplane just that movie just looked awesome to me. And my mom had a poster for it in my ho- my room. Uh, my My hospital room was just covered in aviation posters. It was un- the nurses there at the hospital said this unlike anything they've ever seen before. Um, they they attributed that. Of my recovery was because my parents and friends and family basically made my room look like an apartment not like that 's why I recovered so fast i 'm sure of it. it was just the the mental aspect, but my goal was to be out because I wanted to go see that in theaters, and it opened World Day weekend of two thousand and one so um, they released me um, into my mother's care. I could not really do. It much on my own power I couldn't stand up I mean I could walk but I needed help to stand up from a seated position I needed help to sit down my hands didn't work really that great yet I had so much nerve damage I I could hardly hold a glass I needed people like I could basically hook my thumb onto a coffee mug and hook my thumb into the into the handle and hold it that way but I couldn't grip it with my fingers not tight enough at least and if you had a straw in it for me then I could you know I could drink, you know, anything. Um, so my friends, uh, my flying buddies, they took me to go see Pearl Harbor. And, and it was close to the weekend of my birthday. So we went down to a, went to the bar and they got a beer for me and they put a straw in it. So I was drinking a beer with them. Um, but uh, at that point, I thought my flying career was over because of all my burn scars and my hand amputation, my flying days were done. Um, but I still needed more surgeries and more therapy. So I got out of the hospital after like three some months. And at the time I had like only like 13 or 14 surgeries. I can't remember the exact number, but overall then after that initial three months, I was still going in about once a month, getting more surgeries done, more work done on my hands, more work done on my skin, my scars and my skin grafts. Um, and then also outpatient daily physical therapy of just trying to learn how to walk again. Because um, by all by all means, they, they shouldn't have released me. They, but they knew how mentally big of a deal that was for me to go back home, but they only released me into my mom's care. So my mom basically quit her job and became my home health care for me. She was living with me in my apartment there in Lincoln, driving me to therapy. And it was, um, the last weekend in August, the first in first week of September of Oh one. And, uh, I finally was able to drive a car for the first time. And I drove out to the airport uh, over in Lincoln. My buddy was working uh, as a gate agent for United there in Lincoln. And drove my car right onto the ramp because I still had access. <laughs> drove my car onto the ramp and, and sat on the hood of my car with him, just you know, reminiscing about flying days. And then a week later, I'm in physical therapy. And I hear on the radio, a plane crash in the Trade Center. So... So yeah, I remember I was I was actually driving the physical therapy the day 9 11 happened. And so that changed the world too. But um my world was gotten rocked already. Um and so it took about two years, and I want to say it was around 24 to 28 surgeries when it was all said and done. When the, finally the doctor said there's not much else I can do for you, you're pretty much healed. So um, in regards to all my other injuries. Uh, my vision was blurred when I crawled out of the wreckage was because my contacts were melted onto my eyes. Um, they, had, they had to call in an eye surgeon to come and scrape the contacts off my eyes. And it, it didn't damage my vision. I have a scar on my cornea, I guess, but it, it doesn't affect my vision whatsoever. So um, so when I go in for my eye exams, I go see that eye surgeon. He always gives me a big hug every time he sees me, asks me if I'm still flying. Um, so yeah, I had to rethink my life after that. And I had a degree in aviation, which was now useless to me. So um I decided I was good at computers. I was always good at computers because I was always updating them and building them to play flight simulator. So I knew computers really well. So as I uh decided to go get a computer degree. So I went, there's a there's a uh, community college here in Lincoln, so I figured I'll go get an associate's degree in computers, and that's what I did. So I took two years and I did a double major. I decided since all, so they had a bachelor's degree already, all the general studies were all done. It's like, well, you know, I'll take two years and I'll just do all these other electives and I'll just make, I'll just get two associates at the same time. And that's what I did. I got a double major in uh, networking and PC support. And uh, around 2005, I was able to get a desk job at the uh, Lincoln Airport at the FBO ordering parts, working their parts database. And that was fun for a while. Um, But sitting at the airport every day just made me get that itch. It's like I had to start flying again. Hearing airplanes taking off and working an 8 to 5 job driving a desk. just I was all of... How old was I at the time? See, I was 22 when the crash happened. So I must have been 25 at this point and just realizing I can't do this for the next 40 some years man I, this, this, this this can't be all there is to life I cannot drive a desk for 40 some years I gotta get back in the flight or do something um, there was a guy on the field and I gave his son instrument lessons before the crash in the airplane he owned a share of a little two-seater Grumman Yankee and he was a Southwest guy he's he's long retired now um, and he was almost retired at that time. He was still flying for Southwest, but he was a captain at Southwest. And I he knew me because I was giving his son instrument lessons. But one of his partners was selling their share and he approached me. Do you want to buy this, buy, buy into the share and get back into flying? And I thought, you know, that'll be fun for me to do. You know, I can at least do the hangar's right here behind the office. I can take off and go fly on nights and weekends and just have fun with that. And th- that, that'll help me get through my day job, knowing that I can just go up to this hangar over here after work and go fly. And I did that for a while until eventually where he, uh, another friend who's been at Southwest for several years now, owned his own flight school. And he, he was basically up to his eyeballs and students, and he was doing corporate flying. And he's like, Logan, I need help. I'm drowning. I don't get any days off. I see you out there flying that Yankee. Why don't you come flight instruct, take a few of these students and start flight instructing again. So I took him up on it and started teaching flying again. And it was fun. And it just made me want it more. It's like, okay, I'm flight instructing again. This is exactly where I was. This, was in uh, this was 2006, 2007. So I'm five years post crash. And I started getting that feeling. It's like, this is exactly where I was five years ago. And it feels like I'm putting the pieces back together. But at this point, I still don't think I have a shot in making a, an airline career. It's like, there's no way I'm going to be able to fly an airliner. Not at all. And um, the, that Southwest captain, him and his buddies met a kid who was paralyzed below the waist. And he wanted to fly. So this Southwest captain and all of his other buddies, uh, this Southwest guy... This, for, this former captain retired now, him and his buddies, they would... Uh, their, their thing was building race planes. They would literally build kit race planes and go race them out in Reno every year. So these guys knew engineering. These guys love Tinker with Airplanes. And that's what was great having this Grumman Yankee with these guys because I had no maintenance costs. They, we would do all the annual ourselves and sign it off you know, because there was nothing to do in an annual on those airplanes. And uh, so they met with this paralyzed kid and they decided to put him in a Piper Colt because it has a handbrake. It doesn't have toe brakes. And they mounted an aluminum bar on the right rudder. So when he wants to go right rudder, he pushes down the bar when he wants left rudder, he pulls up on it. And uh, they took it to the FAA and the FAA and Lincoln signed off on it. It's like, yeah, go teach him how to fly in that. well, this kid was really enthusiastic and wanting to go hardcore, more so than those guys wanted to. So they they pawned him off to me and they said, Hey Logan, why don't you go fly with him? So I did that and worked with him and he he flew awesome. He would fly crosswind landings and he would keep basically he had to land with power. He had to keep the power in and he'd crab it. And then right in the flare, he would cut the power and then because we mounted that metal bar right below the throttle. And then he would get on that bar and you know, basically decrab in the flare, and steer it down the runway, and then he would reach over and pull the uh, the handbrake and come to a stop and get off the runway. I mean, he he'd do it, and uh, the uh, FAA signed him off, and he got his private license. So, like the week after he got his private, he takes me for a ride to go to a flying breakfast as a passenger, and not his instructor, and we're watching uh sky West take off out of Lincoln. He's like, Logan, how you're not doing that? And He goes, well, I, I, I go, well, I don't think I have a shot in the world. You know, they're going to, they're going to see my resume and see my logbook and think I'm great until they see my hand. They're going to realize that with my amputation, there's no way I can fly a jet like that. And, uh, I was like, yeah, those, those days are gone, man. I, I got no shot. And he's like, well, have you, have you tried? Have you, have you actually talked to somebody there? Not, and I'm not talking just getting on the internet and Googling, like actually physically talking to somebody. And I was like, well, when you put it like that, no. So I brush up my logbook, brush up my resume, and I apply. I don't carpet bomb, but I apply to a few regional airlines. And the one I was really wanting to talk to, I wanted to talk to SkyWest, but I never got a call back. Uh, but uh, Republic, I applied with. And I only applied to Republic because of uh, Chautauqua. I used to fly the Lincoln. I used to think Chautauqua was a cool call sign. Their airplanes that they flew in were cool. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll fly for Chautauqua. And I heard good things about it. So I applied for Republic and they called me for an interview. And I flew out to Indy and interviewed and had a great interview, great one-on-one. And um, we go back to the airport the whole bus of us that interviewed that day and we're all waiting for our flights and they're all getting phone calls. Like, Hey, you, you, will you accept a the class? They're all getting phone calls like that. Right. They haven't even left town yet. They're getting phone calls. My phone was silent. I'm like, okay, well, at least I know I tried. I did. I, you know, I tried, I gave it a shot. It was fun to actually say I interviewed at an airline. So mission accomplished and a week went by and still no phone call. And, uh, um, so I started thinking it's like you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna email them just to email them a thank you letter you know hey thanks for at least giving me the opportunity to come interview so I wrote a really heartfelt thank you letter on everything that I've been through and thank you for just giving me the opportunity to at least you know try to restore my airline career and if and if they can't offer me a position I completely 110% understand and that it was just a thrill just to come to their office and just meet them that that was that made my day. Um, so I send, this, I send this email off like at 6am like before I drove to work that day. And I'm pulling into the parking lot and my phone is ringing them already. And they're like, Hey, this is so-and-so from Republic Airlines. We got your email. Uh, we want you to know we, we have every intent offering a class. We're just trying to find a class to fit you in. That's why you haven't heard from us yet. You're, you're hired. We're, we're offering you a class right now. We just don't win yet. That's why we haven't called yet. I'm like, Holy, shit, Holy shit. This is happening. <laughs> I, I just, so I just talked myself into a job. Um, so, so yeah, so now I got to think about, well, shit, now I got to actually do this. I have to figure out how to fly an airplane, um, fly a jet and this, and they're going to have me fly the Embraer 170, which is a big ramhorn yoke. So there at Duncan Aviation, I'm trying to find embers in the hangar and sit in the cockpit and try to figure out how the hell am i am going to get my hand on this yoke. And finally, I, I find an ember in the hangar and I think I figure a way to do it if I just cut my hand on the top ram horn and if I wear, and I wear a, uh, a batting glove that the upholstery shop made for me. It's just a batting glove with the fingers cut off and sewed up shut around my hand. And it gives me enough grip that I'm able to just hold the cup the top of it and I'm able to maneuver the yoke all that you know, all, all the ways I can now to hit the autopod trim switch and the autopod disconnect switch and the trim switches. I do have to take my left hand and hit them with my left hand and put my hand back on the throttle. So I just kind of reach over and click them and I'm able to do it. And so the first day of end I'm already getting up to the check airman. It's like, Hey, um, this is my hand, you know, this is how I have to do it. Do you have a problem with that? Is that going to be an issue? and they just looked at me as like you know what the book says you have to do it this way it doesn't say which hands have to do it <laughs> you know? yep you know, the the book says we want you to have your hands on the throttle and stick at all times during approach and landing but there's a caveat in there that says you can take your hand to do other duties as necessary if you need to bring your hand over to hit the trim switches that's legal you know as long as you can fly it to atp standards i don't care how you fly it so so and i did it and uh so i uh I made it through training and I made it on the line flying the Embraer for a lot of years. Um, and this was all of 2007, 2008. So the recession happened and there was the lost decade at that point. So I was the first officer for a long time. And finally, when it came time to upgrade, um, and I held off an upgrading for a while, just because I was, got comfortable with my seniority as a first officer. But eventually it's like, you know, what, I want to move on to the next challenge. You know, and I kind of do want to be a captain now. Um, there was the thing now. Now I have to learn how to do my, the thrust reversers with my right hand. Because how do I, how, I have no fingers. How do I get my fingers into those triggers? Because on the uh, Embraer 170, the thrust reversal triggers are in between the throttles. And so you got to get your fingers underneath them and lift up. And then you pull the whole throttle through a, a gate. So you bring the whole throttles back into reverse. And like the 737 and uh, eventually after some practice, I told the instructors like, Hey, give me just a few minutes here. And, like during breaks, um, like we would take breaks during the upgrade training and I would tell the instructor, I'm going to stay in here. I need to, I need to figure out what's going to work. And finally, I found a way. If I pinch my fingers, I was able to get my, uh, my pinch basically under the left trigger <laughs> and I was able to lift it up and push the throttle pack just slightly behind the gate. That gave me enough room then that I could slide my right hand over to the right trigger and get it up and over. And then I'd slam them both back in reverse. And there was one guy that was questioning the safety of it all. There was a there was a basic instructor in training and he he didn't like the way I did that. He thought I was unsafe and I was taking too long getting the reverses deployed. So they had one of the other check camera come and observe me. And he's like, let's see you do an abort. And so I did an abort. Like, okay, let me see you do a landing and come to a full stop. I did that. And he's like, well, our thrust reversers, they don't say you have to deploy them immediately on touchdown, but they do... Our manuals say you must use them for every landing. Um, So as long as you get them deployed in a reasonable amount of time and what you're doing is reasonable, yeah, you're not getting them on instantly, but you know what? There are guys out there in the line where if you land too soft, the triggers won't release because it's a weight on wheel sensor. But if you have guys making too soft a landing, they sit there and they dick around the those thrusters trying to get them deploy because they're still stuck. They won't deploy at all. They're still locked out. So it's like, I see guys land all the time and they hardly ever get the thrusters deployed because they made such a soft landing. So as long as you're getting them deployed, I'm happy. On top of that, all of our PWB performance numbers are based off no thrust reversers. So all it is is additive. So there's no safety issue here at all. So you kind of told that other guy, you're, 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 you're grasping at straws here. Let it go. About <laughs> being that guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyways, I end up make I end up passing an upgrade and I made the flew the line and I was a camper for several years. I actually found that guy on the line and I made sure when I saw him, I was very pleasant and happy to see him. And I tell you what, I shook his hand so... I pinched his hand so as hard as I could with my right hand when I shook his <laughs> hand. Telling awesome. him how much I appreciated seeing him and how I hope he's doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I had, now I had friends at Southwest. I had a lot of friends from Republic at Southwest. And a lot of my good buddies um, wanted me to come to Southwest. And flying for Republic, um, I had a taste of the culture at all those other airlines. And I really... Uh, the Southwest culture really spoke to me. Um, as a commuter, I commuted all... My whole flying career I've been a commuter. And every time I would jump see in Southwest, I just had such an awesome experience. So much so that I became a full-time paying customer of Southwest. Whenever my family would travel, I would always prefer to buy tickets on Southwest It's because it was always a better experience than anything. And you know, United, American Delta, they're good companies, but... There's just something about my personality just fits really well Southwest. So I told my wife, I think I might want to try giving Southwest a go. All my friends that are there that see me fly think I should have no trouble flying the 737. Now I'm scared of the Boeing yoke. That Boeing yoke is a different shaped yoke, it's a fat yoke. I really can't get a good pinch on it. It's like I was worried until um, in 2000. 17, I think, whenever the Houston Astros were in the World Series. And uh, excuse me, I got to take a sip of my beer here. So telling the story. So it was around 2017, Houston Astros in the World Series. And uh, United puts out this video of this little girl in Houston throwing out the first pitch of one of the games with a 3D printed arm. United made a big to do about it because they have a first officer there who was born without a right hand. He has just this little wrist bone on his right arm. That's all he has. And he's a first officer on the 737. So they had him go meet this little girl. They take her into the simulator. They show this FO basically how he flies a 737. And so I Google this guy and I find his contact information and I email him. And, uh, he, he knew my name. He, he recognized, he knew of my story because he had heard of me getting the job at Republic. And he emailed me back immediately saying, oh yeah, I was wanting to get in touch with you. And so I just gauged everything off of him, gouged everything like, hey, how do you fly the 737 with your hand? Because I at least have a hand. I have a pincher. You have just a wrist bone. How the hell are you doing this? And do you have any special adaptations? What are you doing? And he's like, no, I just, uh, I do full, I do a lot of nose down so there's constant forward pressure and that gives me enough muscle back pressure then that I'm able to maneuver the yoke. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Wow. Okay. And uh, and he's like, yeah, at first they wanted they thought maybe I could do the Airbus, but actually the 737 is easier for me to fly. I'm like, well, shit. Well... Now all my friends that have been bugging me to come to Southwest, they 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 cite, they see this video and they're like, Okay, you're you're out of excuses now. You you have to get serious about this. So I do. I start polishing my resume and I start applying to Southwest every job opening. I go to their job expos religiously, and finally I get the call to come interview. And that two weeks after the interview was the longest two weeks of my life. And uh and then the day, uh, the actual decision day comes and the guys in my class were all in that group text and they're all getting the call. And it's like, well, the, uh, basically, five guys got the call. And it's like, okay, there's no way. Uh, I'm done. Yeah, I'm gonna get the email here any minute. And then the phone rang and it was the Dallas chief pilot calling me, offering me the job. So, so I got the job at Southwest in uh, awesome. April, of, April of nineteen. All of uh 18 years after that crash, and what was your you know, interview uh, on that? I always heard about Southwest interview.
0: I was curious on you know, how that process.
1: You know, um, we did the LOI, you know, which is the uh, CRM exercise, and oh, it's so great too. <laughs> um, you know, you read all the gouges, and all the people talk about their LOIs, all the different scenarios they're going to throw at you, and almost. Almost routine, verbatim. They all say, no, don't change your decision. They're going to try to get you to change your decision. Don't dare change your decision. And uh, so I fly my LOI, and my scenario they gave me was dirty gas, you know? and uh, And so... I immediately look at the the guy on the right. It's like, well, we got tank full of dirty gas. These engines are going to flame out here eventually. We we probably should land immediately. Let's uh, let's divert. And the, I feel like you know the guy gave me low hanging fruit. You know the guy like pre briefed me. He's like I'm going to be the smartest FO you've ever flown with. I'll be your resource for everything. I'm the most senior FO. I know exactly what to do. You know, so you lean on me for help. So I I say this like, okay, so we got dirty gas. We're going to need to divert. And he's like, well the airplane's running fine and I think the airplane's going to run fine until we get to our destination. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is, is this for real? I was like, no, 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 no. We got to defer, you know, we, we need to go over here. And this is the, this is the closest airport. I mean, the, the, of course the scenario is none of the airports are good alternates. You know, they all got something wrong with them. And uh, he's like, well, why don't we divert over here? Um, I got friends there that can come pick us up. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm sure your friends are awesome, but uh that weather's really bad and I don't want to slosh around dirty gas and those in that type of weather. So let's go to where let's go where we can make a smooth landing and not slosh around a bunch of dirty gas. And it was at this point I've made the decision, let's divert here, we'll declare an emergency and get right in. And then uh the scenario goes that I get a message from ACAR is like, hey. Um, this where airport is actually the weather's improved a little bit and it'll help us out maintenance wise and passenger wise if you divert there and it's i was diverting the sfo and the acar's message do you want to go to oakland the weather's actually improved and it helps us out more and i'm like shit why not if it helps everybody else out and the weather's improved there and it's only it's only what two miles away from my and if something doesn't go wrong we just go back to this original plan it's a win-win you know let's do that And so we get back in the interview room and tell everybody what I did. They're like, Oh, you changed your destination. what did you do? You're not (laughs) supposed to change. It's like, well, it's, it's a CRM exercise, you know? And if I'm going to, if I'm going to be so closed mind about new information, that makes me kind of a CRM dick, doesn't it? You know? So I'm, I'm open to new information and new ideas. So. That sounds
0: reasonable to me that you would make the decision go, yeah, we got new information. I I would think if you're locked into one and you didn't change at all, they'd look at that and go, why why did not you change? And and
1: I've heard guys have done that and they never got the call. So, Um, and then my, um, my friend who's been here at Southwest for a while, he pre-warned me. He's like, you know, my log, my, I, I, one of my favorite things is I have four log books that I've filled out over the years and they're all handwritten. I, I used to handwrite, every flight at republic and that got pretty old so i started logging day by day instead of you know so i would do a days worth of flying in one line but i still get the fun when i fill up a page you total up the hours and you forward them onto the next page and the way i look at it is these handwritten logbooks are something that my grandkids are going to have, you know, someday they're going to have, these are the handwritten flights of every day grandpa flood worked, you know, in the airlines. So, so I pride that. And, but man, I did my best. And of course I was chasing my tail. You know, you find yourself one hour off here and you add it up differently and you're spot on. Then the next day you add it up the same way and you're off again for no apparent reason. You know, it's just the way log books And my friend pre-warned me, he's like, they're going to look at your logbooks, And, they're going to try to find something wrong with them, and it might not be nothing. It might, there might be nothing wrong with them. They're going to say something's wrong with them just to rattle you, just to see how you react. And so I kind of had that in mind. And I, man, I I went through, I went through it with a fine tooth comb. I tabbed all the significant events, all the check rides, all the special flights, and I tabbed them all on a special page. And I tabbed exactly which logbook and which page you could find these events because I had a stack of four logbooks. And then I wrote a little note saying, I hope you enjoy reading these logbooks as much fun as I had filling them out over the last 20 years. <laughs> well, I'll get to the logbook portion. The guy just says to me, I looked at your logbooks. They look great. So let's talk about some other stuff. And he started asking me, he asked me questions about the accident and stuff. And, we were talking about sodas, Statement of Demonstrated Abilities, which I had to do with the FAA to get my medical back. And he was like, oh, yeah, my dad-in-law needed a soda. He, he doesn't even have an arm. And we were talking about amputations and, and pilots with disabilities. So we were talking about that the whole time. And uh, then we talked about the accident. And one of the special things I note is, you know, in the eyes of the FAA with, my, with regards to my accident, you know, Raja was the pilot in command. And it was a single pilot operation. So they list me as a, as just simply a a pilot rated passenger. I was a passenger that got hurt. I wasn't actual an acting pilot. So there's nothing in my FAA records, but I told them, it's like, well, if you Google my name, you're going to find these, all these old newspaper articles and magazine articles about my accident. So clearly I was in a plane crash, but when you see my FAA record, there's nothing out there. And that's why they they deemed me as a pilot rated passenger. And so I was very, very forthright with that, and, and so I marked out my application. I marked, yeah, I was in an accident, but not really. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was a very public thing. So I had, I, I was wanted to be forthcoming as much as I could and not try to hide it. And then, uh, and then I had an, another HR interview with another captain, and we just talked flying the line stories. Tell me about a time when I did this and that. And, went right through it and it was a really a great experience uh i walked you know and i of course i go home second guess and everything but then i tell all my friends exactly how the interview went and then, uh, one of my best friends he's at delta he's on the 737 and uh i told him and he just laughed at me he's like i think you talked yourself into a job i really think you did it's <laughs> like well we'll find out um but i got the call and um i had the first people i called my mom and dad and at this point. You know, my dad, my mom and dad had retired to Phoenix um, and my dad was going through, um, he was suffering from prostate cancer and he had chose, he chose not to fight it. He had seen too many of his friends fight the cancer and just make themselves so sick and miserable that they're not even enjoying life. And he wanted to, he wanted to live his life and enjoy it. Um, Before I got hired at Southwest, one of the things, um, you know, as I said earlier, my dad. Um, kind of instilled a love of science fiction and machinery and cars. My dad loved working on old cars also, but as a kid, we, me and my brothers together, we loved watching those Mad Max movies, you know, the road yeah. warrior and whatnot. And I just, and my, uh, my in-laws lived in Australia for a year, several years um, before they moved back to the States. So they, they lived in the States. They moved to Australia for a few years and they came back. So my wife did her fourth grade of elementary school in Australia. And uh, so I got to meet my in-laws, good friends from Australia. They came over when we got married. They flew from Australia to come to our wedding and I got to meet them and always joked like, Hey, I want to go see where they film Mad Max. And we always joke like, Oh yeah, we'll make a road trip because it's a, it's a 13-hour drive from Sydney to get out to where they film and it's in the middle of nowhere. And I always joke, we're going to rent a car. We're going to hit every pub on the way. And we're going to take my dad and we're going to go look at these old cars out there. Cause this guy has a museum of where they film that max in his, in his garage. He has a lot of the original cars that he, that he used in the movie and a few replicas. So uh, for my dad's uh, 79th birthday, and uh, we uh we flew out to Australia, rented a car and we made the road trip to Australia. And my dad, being a retired truck driver, he was really wanting to stop at truck stops and talk to all these Australian truck drivers and uh and he wanted to talk to them about the road trains. You know, in Australia, they do trucks that are like full on, full load, three trailers deep that you do not see in the States at all, like stuff that's nowhere near legal. And it's because the Australian Outback is such a vast area that that's the only way this country keeps going is because of the trucking industry there. So we made a blast. We drove out to Australia, got to see the Mad Max Museum. So, anyway, so my dad's suffering through cancer, all this. So I get the job at Southwest and uh, tell him, you know, he's ecstatic. And uh, finally in uh, July, I go to class. I get to start doing systems. I finally get through the oral exam and I. Call my dad and tell him, hey, I finally passed my oral. Um, but I still don't know if I can fly the airplane yet. I might have trouble with it. My dad just told me, just get in the airplane, get in that simulator and start practicing. You'll figure it out. You always do. You've always found a way to figure it out. If that United kid can figure it out, you can figure it out too. Just just don't don't get frustrated. Be patient. You'll figure it out. And then that night, he uh he had a stroke and passed away two days later. So I, was, so I was in training when that happened and just the culture at Southwest, you know, and I'm trying to swallow it, you know, um, you know, everyone always told me, oh, any type of family emergency, we'll send you home during training. You can always come back to training. And my mom's like, you know what? Dad was so damn proud of you for how much you've accomplished that you leaving training to go feel sorry that he's gone would piss him off. You know, he's he's dead and gone. We'll have the funeral months from now when you're done training he would just be so upset at you if you went left train to go feel sorry that he's gone you know he was so damn proud of you so i'm so i'm, so I'm biting my so like the first day i'm back in class you know I'm biting my tongue you know that my dad just passed away and my whole class knows and they ask me aren't you gonna say something i'm like no no i'm here i'm here for class let's let's move on close ranks and move on let's do this and finally uh uh, the director of training pulls me aside during a restroom break. He's like, get over here. And he's like, uh, so I'm hearing you got some bad news last night. It's like, Yeah, man, yeah, my dad passed away. he goes, Well, what are you doing here? I was like, Well, um, my dad was really happy that I made it here and uh leaving class would, you know, not honor him that well. And he's like, No, this this ain't happening. It's like, Well, I'm staying, you know, I've already talked to my mom about it. My mom's like, Hey, you know, there's nothing else to do at this point. He was dead and gone, you know. He goes, uh I'm gonna need your need your mom's number. I'm gonna call your mom and talk to her about this. So I give her my mom's number and I go back to class. And then he pulls me aside the next break. He's like, Okay, talk to your mom, you're staying. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and he's like, I'm gonna need your mom's address so I can send her some flowers. And apparently my mom he my mom told him my life story again, like how much I've fought, And it's like, you know what? No, we're, we're too damn proud of him for where he made it. And like, this is him staying honors his dad more than you can imagine. So, so yeah.
0: Well, how so, yeah. now you're, you're, you're at Southwest and you've been there how many years now? It'll be two years here in July. So, uh, and obviously you adapted to the, to the yoke and flying it and how, just, yeah. Just curious I on still that. have my
1: moments. Um, what I learned was the yoke is thinnest just below um, as you as you on the right side of the yoke. The yoke gets relatively thin um, as it goes on down the right side there, just before it curves around to the base, and that's where I pinch. That's where I can go and pinch and hold the yoke. Um, the problem is the way my wrist twists you know, I don't have a hundred percent good dexterity. So the way the yoke pivots to the right, when I go right aileron, I just don't have the good muscle dexterity to go full aileron single handedly. Yeah. What I've learned, I've had to do, um, my, the batting glove that I've had for 20 plus years, I still have it. I still use it. It just wasn't enough. I, I would feel like if I would go to right aileron and the tension gets pretty tight, where I almost need to get my left hand and give it a little tap on the left side of the yoke to give it yeah. a little bit more right aileron. Um, I could feel my hand slipping off my right hand. So I told my wife, it's like, I can't, this is, it's not safe. I don't like that. So we found a weightlifting glove and I talked to some other guys that um, that knew um, amputee pots and they're like, oh yeah, I know guys that would tie their hands onto the yoke or tie their wrists on the yoke. So I found a gold's gym weightlifting glove. My wife whacked the fingers off and sewed them shut. And what I do now is I plant my right hand on the yoke and take my weightlifting glove and just wrap it on real good. So now I got a good grip and it's not coming off. And but I still need a little bit of help. And so I talked to some captains and these other guys are like, "Oh shit! If I have a good cross one, I've taken my hands off the throttle and given a little help on the yoke. It's like it's a tough yoke. It's not the most ergonomical yoke." So now I don't feel so bad or self conscious about it. So,
0: well, and that's that, really uh, all. I-, I was just going to say that right aileron, that it's just awkward. Um, you know, when number one, Boeing made a yoke that's slick as all get out. I don't understand that. Yes. But, and then, yes. and then when you roll the right aileron in with the, uh, from the right seat, I'd much rather put it up, go left and up over the top. That's comfortable. But the,
1: What's, the well, but the, the reason is, is because there's no lip. Yeah. Um, when you go left, your fingers are up underneath the trim switches, which is bulbing out. Yep. And that's a, that's where you got leverage to go left. When you go right and go down, there's no lip catching your hands. So you got no leverage is what the issue is. It's a matter of leverage. There's nothing there to leverage against.
0: That's it. Yeah. Well, and again, like everything, you figured out a way to overcome and make it. And that, that's awesome.
1: Well, they appreciate it. You know, I, you know, I, I'm always self-conscious. I'm always trying to, you know, think of ways of doing things differently. And I still haven't found anything different yet other than occasionally taking my, you know, really it's only right in the flare. It's only like in that last 10 feet, when I got the throttles at idle, I'll have to reach up with my left hand to give it a little tap and be ready to go at throttle. If I bounce or need to do a go around and I could take my hand and slam those throttles forward and hit that Toga button, you know, just as quick. So So. Yeah. And
0: 737, you, it's just, of all the airplanes I've ever flown, it's, you know, I've always felt like I could figure out the other airplanes. This one is like just about the time I get it figured out, you know, you slam one in, you're like, wow, where'd that come from? So it's.
1: Right. It's just a, <laughs> yeah, everyone's always told me, though, oh, you got to roll it on. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not ready for that yet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Man, <laughs> Logan, this was a fantastic, I just, I truly enjoyed um, listening to your story again, and I think uh, I think all the listeners are going to really, really appreciate.
1: Well, hopefully, like you can it. Yeah, you can edit it down so I know I I tend to no I, I, tend I to drag on perfect. and and, and uh, divulge and and go off on a tangent on some things. I'm wow. trying to think of anything other issues I can think of to talk about or things I've come across.
0: Yeah, I mean, but would you th- feel like you're pretty much, I mean, you've got you where you want to be at Southwest. You've, I mean, eventually you, you'll have to make that decision to move to the left seat and figure that, that out again. But,
1: Oh, and I'm not worried about that at all. in fact, the, when I find the left seat, it's way easier for me, the thrust reversers, on um, the 737 are are not an issue for me at all. I can get my full hand underneath those those levers just fine and pull them back. So that's yeah. not an issue at all. Yeah, that's that's one thing I when I when I came over to Southwestern Republic, that was one thing I told myself I was gonna miss because when I upgraded, man, it felt good to fly with my good hand on the yoke to grab that yoke and yank mm-hmm. and bank. And you know, I was LaGuardia based. And I love being based in LaGuardia. I love that airport. I love shooting expressway visuals and clicking off all the automation and hand flying, yanking and banking around uh, City Field. Oh, that was so fun. Then going to doing the river visuals, hand flying all that, yanking and banking down the river. And when I came to Southwest, I realized I'm going to be back in the right seat with my you know, my not so good hand on the yoke and it's like it's not I'm not gonna have that fun feeling. You know, I'm actually gonna have to concentrate and focus on where my hands are at and not just fly the airplane for fun. So someday, yeah, I'll upgrade and I'll have no issues. I know that for a fact. I'm just curious
0: guy- on the medical part, are you are there any other uh you said you're pretty much done with all surgeries and everything, everything's
1: yeah, yeah, they just, there's nothing else they can really do for me unless they come out with some new technology and uh and of course that's all you know risk versus reward you know do i want to subjugate myself to more surgery and that in turn a surgery like that would definitely involve the FAA they would have to go through all my paperwork and it's like sometimes it might not be worth it in the long run so so yeah i mean i'm sure i mean gosh it's been you know, it was it was exactly 20 years ago. Um, it was February, you know, February of 2001. So here we are, 20 years later. I'm sure technology has advanced quite a bit for amputations and skin grafts and whatnot. Um, but the thought of going through the paperwork process again, because when I did get my medical back, um, they they gave me a laundry list of things they wanted me to get checked out first. Um, I had to see a shrink to make sure to have any PTSD. I had to see a pulmonologist because my lungs got burned so bad that um, they uh, they wanted to see how my lungs were producing oxygen. Um, I had to go see a neurologist because I got knocked out, make sure to have any nerve damage. And then the physical therapist had to measure all my movements and muscles to see how well I can move and how well I can stretch. And uh, then I had to then I had to do a soda ride, a statement of ability. And that was very rudimentary. There's it's not really a check ride, they just want to see you physically manipulate controls of an airplane. So and that and that was a one and done. Once you do it in an airplane that you're rated for at the time, any new airplanes you get checked out and are automatically closed under that. So so um at the time I did it in the Grumman Yankee and I hadn't flown an embraer yet. So when I took my Basically, a soda is covering you all the previous airplanes you've flown. So, any type of new airplane you fly, you're, you're demonstrating that based on your medical condition as it is at then and now. So, so there was not anything to do with when I got my Embraer type rating or my 737 type rating, I'm proving I can fly that. So, now if I have a change to my physical hands, that would require a new soda. That gotcha. I'd have to, I would have to re demonstrate that based on my new medical condition. I can still fly these airplanes. So. So it's only when when you screw something on your body up, you got to do it.
0: Yeah. I can tell you're going to be a a huge motivation. I get, I get so many questions on, I want to be a pilot, but I have this medical condition or I have this going on. I, I answer and I don't have the answers to a lot of those. I've, I've sent people to flight docs. I've asked flight docs, um,
1: Know, yeah the friends
0: but you're, the you're
1: it's very hard to find information out there about yeah. uh of disabilities it's really it's not talked about a lot there is a few out there and you google around you'll find a few um you know the guy united i found uh, there's a guy at atlantic southeast um he was burned in a brazilia crash in the 90s and i connected with him and his burns and amputations are very very similar to mine and so and he fly, he was flying a CRJ for a long time. And I was like, well, if he's doing a CRJ, I should be able to do the Embraer. So they're they're out there. And when you find them, yeah, and most of them, when they reach out, you know, if you reach out to them, most guys are pretty easy to talk to. And and I've had a few people talk to me through Instagram and whatnot. And I've gave them advice and some pointers and uh and gave them some sort of sort of direction. You know, so I will keep your contact for future uh when you guys want to, you know, ask questions and talk, how do I get there? Yeah, but if you, I mean, you see the see the burn pilot in uniform, you know, it's oh. pretty much me. But the only thing I always uh, laugh at is, um, you know, I got a lot of friends who serve in the military. Some of my best friends do, and and I always wanted to serve, but I never did because of my eyesight being so poor. I really wanted to fly, and so I never enlisted. But every time when I, I get approached by so many people in the, in the airport. Happens probably once a month, at least if not more, where someone will say, "Hey, I just want to thank you for your service," and I always got to shake my head and say, "Oh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell my friends, thank you mm. for them, but I didn't serve." People always assume that I, I was I'm burned <laughs> and. uh So I always, I always love watching your, your military videos and always think of service members, but yeah, I get mistaken a lot for service member, unfortunately. And that's the time we live in, of course.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of those guys that came back, unfortunately, that, that way. And uh, yeah, well, I just, I just want to tell you again, as we wrap it up today, I, I, I'm truly grateful uh, for your time and your story. And it's just, it's inspirational to me, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for people to hear it because I know it's going to be very inspirational for them. So uh, it's been fantastic, Logan. Thank you so much for, for coming on and doing this. Oh, you're welcome. You're so welcome. Uh, and I look forward to meeting you. I'll keep an eye out passing in the airport one of these days. So I know you don't know what I look like, but I know what you look like. So I yeah, promise I'll say come back. And- yeah, say hi to me, man. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Well, thanks well, again. To- Brother, we'll take a picture together and we'll uh, we'll Photoshop your face out. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm still kicking around uh, showing my face one of these days, so maybe uh, maybe I'll, I'll just do that. So that'd be a good one to do it on. So, there anyway, hey, brother, thanks again for uh, for doing this with us. Uh, again, I appreciate it, and uh, you
1: truly are inspirational to a lot of us. All righty, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much.